0: Hey everybody. Before we get started today, I just want to let you know what you're listening to, because this is not a standard Strong Towns podcast. Uh, I was recently on a show called Saving Elephants, and it's a conversation basically about conservative ideas. Uh, The uh, interviewer wanted to talk to me about Strong Towns and about kind of uh, the overlap between Strong Towns thinking and conservatism. Uh, I just, you know, I'm going to reiterate we are fully a nonpartisan organization. I mean, we, we, we don't get involved in politics and I firmly believe, and I think I say this in the interview, you know, cities need uh, people with conservative dispositions. They need people with liberal dispositions working together. Uh, We, we kind of pride ourselves on uh, trying to be able to speak broadly across uh, what has become a a divisive political uh, conversation here in the U S but this is a podcast that's going to focus on conservative ideas and particularly conservative ideas in urbanism and cities. Uh, it's an interview of me, which is kind of turning things around here a little bit on the podcast, but we, we liked it so well, we thought it was worthy at, we were going to share it with you today. So by, by permission of saving elephants, uh, here is, uh, that, uh, I will be back again soon. Gosh, I have so much, uh, the book, uh, I spent a lot of time, uh, working on confessions of a recurring engineer doing the final, final, final edits. Uh, I've got the advanced copies here. Now, uh, we got like two months left. This thing's coming quick. Uh, also I have an update for you on lawsuits and some of the legal stuff. Uh, we'll get to that in subsequent episodes here. I'm not going to leave you hanging. Um, enjoy this one, everybody. Take care.
1: Listening to the Saving Elephants Podcast, a place where millennials express and defend their conservative values in hopes of restoring the Republican Party. Join us as we reignite conservatism for millennials. As our politics become more polarized, many of the issues we argue about become more national in focus. From climate change to the abortion debate. Sometimes it's easy to lose sight of the local community where we live and to think of ourselves as part of a uniform blob of red or blue state America. But it is in fact the local level where we individuals can often have the greatest impact. And sometimes the seemingly mundane issues of where we put a stoplight or zoning issues or how we build our roads and bridges can, in the aggregate, have a greater impact on our quality of life than may first meet the eye. I'm your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me in this episode is Chuck Marone, the founder and president of Strong Towns, an organization that supports thousands of people across the United States and Canada who are advocating for a radically new way of thinking about the way we build our world. I first became acquainted with Chuck Marone and the work that Strong Towns is doing many years ago, And I was actually quite surprised how engaging and interesting a subject as seemingly boring as urban development can be. And I think that's borne out in our conversation, how focusing on how we live at the local level, what Chuck refers to as the human habitat, touches a multitude of aspects of our life that actually weaves its way quite nicely into the conservative worldview. You're listening to The Saving Elephant Show. I first became acquainted with you and your work when you came to Tulsa, gosh, I want to say six, maybe seven years ago. And I think it is a testament to the sensibility and the durability of your message that, honestly, it it wasn't even until earlier this year I realized you were kind of a self-identified conservative. (laughs) I felt like your message was rather transpartisan, and maybe that's my own biases playing into it that I couldn't tell the difference. But I, but I think that's really a strength of Strong Town, and so I I want to commend you for that. I'm I'm very grateful to have you on the podcast. I like the work you guys are doing at Strong Towns, and 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 I'll give you a chance to respond to that. But I did want to hop on here. Use this phrase "human habitat," and I was wondering if you could unpackage for us what that is and and your kind of orientation about thinking about how we live in communities, society, cities, and towns.
0: Thank you. I, I'm so happy to to be able to chat with you too. It's it's interesting because the conservative label means a lot of different things to to a lot of different people and i i have found my brand of conservatism uh being really uh one that is very deferential to the received wisdom so to speak and i think that i think that is the original like conservative bent too right it's like this idea that you know, progressives are. Let's clear the board and throw everything out and start over. We got a better plan, a better image. You know, wipe the slate clean and, and we can, re- you know, just redo things in a better way. And conservatives uh, have this tendency to say, uh, "You know what? There's a reason why things are the way they are. If we're going to change it, let's change it incrementally. Let's respect that received wisdom and be a little bit humble." That's that's my brand of conservatism. And so, human habitat is my way of acknowledging that the way we built our cities for thousands and thousands of years essentially evolved in the same way that we can look at a beehive having evolved with bees and an anthill having evolved with with ants. You know, bees go out and construct a hive. They construct a hive that, in, in all senses, makes them fully bees, right? Like it, 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 it has their structure, their way of, of, uh, laying things out of building things that allows them and, and their bee society. And these are very complex societies with, you know, different roles and functions and, 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 you know, all that. I'm not a bee expert, but I, I know enough about their, uh, them to, to recognize that, you know, their hive is in a sense, a uh, part of their evolved, uh, state of being. And it, once you recognize that, if you step back and look at humans and the places that we built, particularly like ancient cities that really evolved out of hunter-gatherer societies uh, and, and and you know more primitive ways of being, you, you see this pattern that is eerily familiar, eerily familiar to things that we would have built say a hundred years ago. I mean, thousands and thousands of years, cities were built in a very similar way. And when you delve into it, when you study it, when you start to ask like humble questions, conservative kind of questions about why things are the way they are, you start to recognize that there's a lot of received wisdom born out of trial and error, you know, born out of people trying things and saying, you know, that, that didn't work, throw that out, Uh, you know, and, and, and really in a very Darwinian sense, the best ideas kind of rising to the top, you know, the ideas that make us fully human. In a, in a, in a physical sense, in a cultural sense, in a philosophical sense, in a financial sense, you know, we look at it often at strong towns as a financial part. This is a, a, a way of building places that's kind of optimized to us. And so human habitat is my humble, conservative way of expressing, you know, the traditional development pattern as planners call it the the pre great depression way of, of building and assembling
1: cities. Yeah, it's interesting. There, there's probably a lot of other terms we could throw out, or other things I've heard. I know Jonah Goldberg, uh, the podcaster, talks about simple rules for complex societies, or kind of a, a Burkean model of um, of allowing a place that the places we inhabit we allow it to flourish, but that we don't try to impose a a strictly rational or top down solution to problems because we recognize through humility through observation that we unfortunately as humans are limited in our ability to find solutions to these things. Yeah. Um, and so that, that is, and, and again, maybe, maybe Chuck, the problem is I'm just so biased as a conservative. They got my lens on and I can't tell that you're, you're feeding me red meat. And I think, Oh, just anybody to listen to that and agree with it. <laughs> I mean, it just seems so obvious, but, well, but it's I, obvious. It's not that obvious to some people.
0: Yeah, it's, it's not. And I, I think too, there's this intersection today with our politics that make it difficult too, because You know, conservatism today, you know, I I kind of reject the notion that the Republican Party is the home of conservatism. You look at that a lot of conservative thought today, as manifested in the Republican Party, tends to be around preserving current systems. And I look at like our current development pattern, the idea of highways running through cities, neighborhoods being kind of turned over to the automobile Uh, everything being spread out in in single family homes, kind of exclusively across the landscape, big box stores, strip malls, fast food franchises. These are all actually manifestations of a huge experiment that we're doing on ourselves. In the 1930s, uh, the progressives of that era sat down and said, cities need reform and the way we're going to reform cities and the way we're going to reform our economies is to institute this kind of entirely new development pattern and we will take people who now live in what i would call human habitat but what you know they would just call like cities and neighborhoods and the way we'll solve these problems is we'll spread them out over the landscape everything that we witness today in North America, in, in terms of how our cities are built and how they function and how we get around and how we interact and where we buy things, this is stuff that is brand new and, and is the result of really a progressive mindset of wiping the slate clean and trying over. Like if we could rebuild, uh, the North American continent in a new vision, this is what, this is what it would be. And that that's what we are living through. And I, I think a lot of the, uh, the struggles that we have, whether it's economic struggles or social struggles or, or you know, physical health struggles or what have you, uh, can be directly tied back to this massive experiment in which we are literally the guinea pigs of.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting. You, you, there's a lot of places we could go with the automobile, for example. I, I'm here in Oklahoma, and you probably know, you know, that this is my limited perspective in this state. We became a state kind of at the height of the populist era, and, and moving on in towards sort of the progressive era. Era, I've heard it said before that Oklahoma is a very fine place to be if you're an automobile. Yeah, that this entire state is designed for that. And, and maybe we're not unique. Maybe most states are, but it, it's it's interesting because I want I want to unpackage this a little bit. I've heard arguments oftentimes from a conservative perspective that the automobile is a very conservative idea. It's very industrious. It's very pro liberty. Uh, It's it's it grates against the sort of, say, modern uh, current progressive, not the 1930s. Right. But today's progressives of mass transit, uh, more top down. I I don't want to say population control. I'm not trying to attribute any, you know, um, I know exactly what you mean. Right. Right. So 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 let's and I know this is a tension within conservatism, but but, but let's talk about because I think part of what it means to be an American is go west, young man. Right. That's like spread your wild, like get away from where you're born from, like. This is sort of raw, raw American. That, that kind of cuts at the heart of an American conservative say. But there's also this tension of well, that's sort of anti-localism. That, that's sort of breaking outside of a Burkean, Tocquevillian mold that maybe, as you describe your brand or to a certain extent my brand of conservatism would uh, would adhere to. So, is there a tension there? Is there something like how if we if we could start the 1930s over, say? What, in your view, would be a a better approach for us having not gone down this path in the first place that would still hold true to sort of a, uh, that, w- that would not shun the obvious advantages of the infrastructure we have of, I can hop in my car and be anywhere I want to in the country, you know, very quickly. Right.
0: So if we went back to the 1930s, I look at my neighborhood where I live today, and it had... I know in the 1950s, so so I'm 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 interpolating a little bit, but in the 1950s, my neighborhood had 13 grocery stores. Uh, today, my neighborhood had a zero, zero. Now, if you look at those thirteen grocery stores, and let's assume that they were here in the nineteen thirties, and I, I think that's a pretty good assumption, Th- they were ethnic grocery stores, and by ethnic, I mean you know Central Minnesota ethnic. So uh, there was a Finnish butcher and a Swedish this and a Norwegian that and a German whatever. You know, we 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 have a, different
1: a, shades a, of white.
0: Yeah, a, a range of ethnicities that that <laughs> tend to be a very northern central European. But you know, th- there was a there. There were there were many different options that I had that I would have had living in my house today, uh, within a, a short distance of my neighborhood. So I had a lot of choice. I also had a, a lot of options in terms of how I got there. Um, you know, I could drive if I wanted to. I could easily walk. Walking was very common. It was kind of the default thing. If you look at the difference between walking and driving, there is certainly a, a difference in terms of how quick I can get to a place, but there's also a big difference in terms of how much things cost. You know, for, for me to be forced, in a sense, to buy an automobile today to just to get groceries was not something that was forced upon me in the 1930s. If I lived in the city, I, I, I had a lot more choice in terms of how I structured my life and, and structure my own personal family, economics, and finances. If you fast forward today just just on grocery stores today we have in in my area my city we have one grocery store outside of my city we have two more so we have three total they are corporate grocery stores so the other ones would locally owned these are all corporate uh they're large large stores so we're gonna go and you know get everything at once and come home they're out on the edges the tax structure is different so the city actually and we've pretty definitively shown this at Stormcast, is losing money the taxpayers are actually subsidizing this corporation mm-hmm. to come in and sell us food on this lot we're, we're we're taking a loss on that in terms of the tax base. So, and, and then, you know, I also am forced to, to, to participate in this market, own a vehicle. And because I'm married and have kids, I'm actually forced to have two vehicles. And so a huge portion of my income is sucked up in just doing daily routine that, my ancestors living in the same place in the same neighborhood, pre, pre, you know, this huge experiment, would have found very easy and routine to do. That is a radically different approach to living, and I, I think we can look at it as a snapshot today and kind of codify it, and then listen to the progressives say, "Oh, SUVs are terrible, and we need more transit," and I, 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 I again. Wiping the slate clean is not ever, you know, it should never be the option. That's what got us into this point. It, it, it was saying these 13 grocery stores are somehow not good. What we need is one big one out on the edge. The, the, this, this, idea of a two block walk to get your groceries and then walk home. Uh, what we really need is, is to be able to drive someplace. And, and all the costs of redoing the streets to accommodate that, of redoing our development pattern to accommodate that, of changing our economic structure to accommodate that. I think sometimes we just lose sight of the fact that this is like a radical reengineering of society <laughs> that that was that was largely kicked off by progressives in a progressive era.
1: And, and that's interesting because I, I could I can also see a say strictly libertarian argument. Progressive sometimes are anti Walmart or anti big right. corporations, so you you get the libertarian to say, "Well, look at all the jobs Walmart's created,
0: and it's, the it's, fact that
1: it's drawn put out yeah. of business the mom and pop shops is is you know it's regrettable, but that's how the free market works, and people are freely choosing to to shop there." So I'm and, and I, this is kind of bumping up against what you're saying. So the reason I'm throwing this out there is the way you're describing this is is not so much a Machiavellian individuals wanted to destroy the mom and pop shops. Right. but it was that we oriented society in such a way that that is in fact what happened and even though we are theoretically all still in a capitalist framework operate you know using our our freedom of choice to to go where we will to spend the money we will there's something about the way we've organized society that has made it difficult it, it, tell me if i'm misunderstanding here that has made it difficult for mom and pop to survive and has actually made it easier for the large corporation to come out.
0: Yeah. Let, let let's break that down in a couple of ways because, you know, I, I think the libertarian argument is really about choices within a marketplace. Mm-hmm. And if we went back to the 1930s and the 13 grocery stores in my neighborhood, there were there was competition in the marketplace. I mean, I could go to that butcher, I could go to that butcher. I whatever one was going to have the lowest price and the best meat and the best service and all that. There was a there was a market. I think it's important to note that there's no market today, right? Like in my my town, we have fifteen thousand people live here. Another ten thousand in the, the neighboring city. In, in fifty thousand in the region, we have th- three grocery stores to shop at. Two are the same chain, the same brand, and then there's one other one. There, there is they have the same exact prices, the same exact everything. It, 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 there is no there is no choice or competition. But I think even more importantly than that. Those 13 grocery stores or or, or different food type of, of, of places competed within this framework of human habitat, this framework that balanced a whole bunch of different things. And let me just focus on the finances of it, because when we study the economics of traditional neighborhoods, what we find is that they financially are really productive. They generate more tax revenue For the community, then they require an ongoing service and maintenance. And so in a sense, they are as as a business competing in a marketplace, and they've got to make that work. But on a neighborhood level, they're actually adding to the neighborhood capacity as opposed to taking from it. And in other words, they pay taxes and they're paying at least their way, their share of the road, of the sewer and water, of the sidewalks, of the street maintenance, of plowing the snow and all that. They're paying at least their share, almost everywhere they're paying more than that. Okay. If we go out to the big box store, we go out to the grocery store or the Walmart or what have you, what we see over and over and over again is that these transactions do not, not only do not pay their way, but they actually have like a Ponzi scheme type of situation to them. So the new Walmart comes in, they're able to get Wall Street financing, which the local grocer is not. With that local, with that Wall Street financing, they're able to get really low rates, do this at bulk. They go in. Uh, they build the store. They'll put in all the infrastructure, maybe even sometimes. Sometimes they ask for subsidies, but let's let's say even without subsidies, they'll pay for the road and the pipes and, and, and the street lights and all the stuff that's required. And if you're a city government, this feels fantastic because you just got this massive investment in your city, a big Walmart or a big new big box grocery store. Um, if you look at the tax revenue you're now going to get for the first – two, three, four, five, 10 years, whatever it is, you feel like really rich. You've got all this money coming in. But on your balance sheet, you have agreed to take care of that road and you have agreed to fix that pipe and you've agreed to maintain those streetlights. And all those things are, in a sense, written in now to your future plan, not just today, but forever. Like 100 years from now, you've still got a road there. 200 years from now, you've still got a pipe there that you have to maintain. If you look at the revenue you're getting from the big box store, if you look at that and you compare that to the promise you took on, you are going to bring in 10 cents, 15 cents, 20 cents on a dollar of what you're actually going to spend over the life of that infrastructure investment. You are losing money. Add to that the fact that big box store model is to be there 12 to 15 years and then Reevaluate and potentially, and this happens very often, close that store and move to a new location. There are lots of Walmarts that sit across the street from the old Walmart, uh, where the old Walmart is boarded up and you got a new one there. Mm-hmm. So their business model as, as a corporation is very short-term and extractive, where the commitment of the community is very long-term and, and, and in a sense built around building wealth and capacity. That 1930s grocery store might have been more modest, it might have been smaller, it might have been more local, it had local ownership, but what it did is it actually optimized uh, in, in this human habitat kind of way the economics of providing food to people in a way that was good for the owner of the store, good for the neighborhood, good for the community as a whole, was not extractive. What you have now is a model that, yes, it's competitive in a national marketplace and in a national marketplace, Walmart will compete with Target, will compete with this grocery store chain and that grocery store chain. But at the local level, it is wholly extractive. It takes way more out than it puts in and it actually makes the city, the community, the place where we live a lot poorer. I I, I will point out to people at the federal level I tend to be very libertarian. I I don't even call myself conservative. Like I tend to be really libertarian. Like let's keep the government out of as many things as we can, including building roads and interchanges and kind of tilting the scale towards these major corporations.
1: So so you Um, don't support a $6 trillion infrastructure package? Oh my
0: gosh, no. I mean, it's, it's, (laughs) this is corporate welfare, right? We, We package it up as helping cities and helping poor people and helping whatever, but, but the $6 trillion is a corporate welfare package. That's what it is. But at the local level, uh, you know, I think a localist approach, a conservative approach is one that does favor localized markets, but, but in some ways protects those localized markets from the, 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 the stormy seas of, you know, the, the, what, what really is a subsidized corporate landscape that is very, very predatory on, on local communities.
1: And I think it is consistent with a, certainly a wide understanding of conservatism that the more local you get, the more dare I say, even authoritarian one might be able to to endure. But but I'm curious here because I suppose that even if we could demonstrate, hey, this this large corporation coming into town not only isn't extractive, it's it, let's just let's just presume for some reason we knew it was either net positive or just wasn't going to make any difference one way or another over the long run. We're still talking about a significant opportunity cost, right? Whatever square footage this corporation is taking up is yet another place that the mom and pop grocery store is is not there adding value to the community. If you
0: just look at it that way, is very true. If we just look at community economics, like local 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 economics, we 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 understand that Amazon, for instance, says to the people who sell on its platform. Uh, you can't price your things lower on another platform. You can't. And, and they have all these rules of people who are there. And and we we look at that and we say, okay, that makes sense. You might, you might like it or you might not. But you're like, from Amazon's perspective, that makes sense. Because what Amazon is trying to do is bring people to their platform and maximize the value of Amazon.com, the business. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we look and we say, okay, that makes a lot of sense. What is a city? A city is a municipal corporation. It is actually a corp, uh, an incorporated entity, the same way that Amazon is an incorporated entity. It's an incorporated entity where, in a sense, the shareholders are the property owners within that community. It's the people who live there. They're, they, you they know, they they vote for, in a sense, a board of directors and a CEO. They have an organizing structure. It, it's a corporation, but it's a corporation of of landowners and property owners and residents within a community. The idea that they would look at their community and in, in the same way that Amazon says, you know, you can't price lower in some other places. They, they do, in a sense, anti-competitive things in order to, to you know, v- maximize the value of the corporation. And we call that the market. Mm-hmm. The idea that a municipal corporation would look at the marketplace within their community and say, that entity is good for our overall health as a municipal corporation. That one is not that somehow that is uncompetitive to me is a cherry picking of what your marketplace is. I think the best markets, the markets that uh, function in the in, in way to create the maximum amount of prosperity, the maximum amount of value of, of marketplace interactions tend to be localized marketplaces. Um, and, and you see this in, again, getting back to the human habitat idea, you, you see this in natural ecosystems, large players don't exist in nature. They just don't, they get wiped out. And, and if you really delve into like libertarian thinking in a libertarian standpoint, there really should be no large players because large players become anti-competitive, and, and and they should be in a sense uh, undermined, uh, you know, competed out of business. They, they should go away. And the reason why we see Google's and Amazon's and Walmart's and these big things is because the the the, the step that they take is really one to use their position and their power to influence government, to influence these systems. Uh, to 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 demand these local subsidies, whether direct or indirect, and, and 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 that from a local city standpoint, a community standpoint, a municipal corporation standpoint, is really destructive, anti-competitive
1: behavior. So, I, I want to go back to something you're saying a little bit earlier. Yeah. Um, to make sure I'm understanding you correctly, I recall a conver- I, I recall Rush Limbaugh years ago made this point about. I think there was a a community somewhere in the Northeast, a very liberal community that prevented Walmart from setting up shop in this local community. And Rush Limbaugh, who, and let me be very clear, while he says some things I I had agreed with, um, I would not consider to be the holy grail of conservatism. I thought. grew
0: up on Rush Limbaugh, so let's just—I'm hey, I'm 48, and uh, I remember first hearing him when I was like 17, going, "Oh my gosh, this is this is incredible." I, yeah. I did, you know, I did find that over time that I I, I kind of drifted away a little bit, but the 90s to me were the Rush Limbaugh decade
1: in my life, right? I th- yeah, I and mean, then it was, it was kind of a curiosity, like, did he change or did I? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, I was I was a huge fan of his back in the day, but. Um, but, but he made this point sort of like his point was that this was an example of local government overreach of these bedwetting liberals basically preventing their local community from having choice. Like think of all the poor people that'd be serviced if Walmart came to this community. more jobs, lower prices and and so I and I, I know there's a tradeoff here, and so i'm I'm curious it it. I don't you don't necessarily have to be specific with me if, if that's not no let you me know, be you don't very have to say specific. yeah that community is keep Walmart from getting out or, or from building here but is that the sort of thing you're saying where less libertarians and we move lower down the scale is that it would make sense in certain cases for local communities for the government itself to prohibit or yeah, yeah, yeah. I know no, that part of what we're talking about, right. yeah. Part of what we're talking about is the whole thing's backwards, right? Not only are right. they not prohibiting, they're actually incentivizing these people to set yes. up shop, but but are you actually suggesting, ah, eh, let's not even worry about a level playing field. Let's there are some businesses that local leaders need to say, you know what, maybe it doesn't make sense for this national corporation to be here. I, I
0: feel like the instances that I've seen where they've said, we're just gonna ban Walmart or we're gonna ban uh, Starbucks because we don't want corporate chains. I feel like those are places that are in many respects being lazy, like I, like intellectually lazy, because I think that oftentimes that is a, and I'm, I'm kind of, you know, genuflecting to, to probably Russia's gut reaction here. A lot of those things are done without a solid understanding of, of anything beyond. We just don't like corporations or we don't like chains. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I think if a city were going to go about this in a sophisticated way, what they would say is that here is here in example A is a development pattern. And, and by that, I mean a way of assembling streets and buildings and, and, and neighborhoods that makes the community wealthier. And here is a development pattern, a way of assembling streets and buildings and neighborhoods that makes the community poorer. And, and this is something that any community can do. I've seen it done for Tulsa, and we can look at like the core of Tulsa as being financially really productive, except for the places where you've ripped a bunch of stuff down and have these massive parking lots. But but for the most part, like the core of Tulsa retains a lot of this human habitat form and financially is a real winner for you. It financially is really productive. But the further you get out on the edge, the more that productivity goes down, the more the costs go up, and, and the more it is making your community poorer. The more you build out on the edge, the more it's making you poor. And so what I would say is Walmart, if you can fit into this development pattern that is wealth building for our community, that makes our community, gives us more capacity, makes us more prosperous, then I, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm fine welcoming you in. Like if, if you can be part of something that builds wealth instead of extracts it, I, I have less problem with your corporate structure, than with what you're doing in a competitive marketplace in the community. Here's the, here's the rub with that. And I'm not trying to be cute uh, by saying that, but here's the rub. Their business model cannot work in the same way that a, you know, a family business model works. So if you say the productive development pattern, you're going to have you know, buildings that are no more than 5,000 square feet, which, which is what you would say, you know, that that's, that's what in a small town in particular, in a city the size of Tulsa, even, you know, that that's what a productive development pattern looks like. If you said that they would find that their business model no longer worked their whole like instant supply chain, you know, bring in the huge semi unload stuff the same, you know, within 48 hours, it's off the shelf. That business model would not work anymore. And so they would have to change their business model. And in a sense, they would have to change it to be less extractive to cities. And I think that would be a good thing. But if they could do that, I would welcome them in. Like, come on in. I'm not being anti-competitive. I just don't want your competitiveness to be at the cost of the solvency of my community.
1: You mentioned Tulsa. Are you familiar with our BOK Center, the, the, uh, the, the arena in downtown Tulsa?
0: Yeah. I, yeah. The, the big, huge mega project thing that was done. You're, you're sitting there in downtown Tulsa and you're like, oh, this is nice. And it's got some potential and I can see things going in. And then you look down the street and you're like, oh my
1: gosh, what is that? Yeah. That thing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's huge. That has been touted often in Tulsa. And, and I'll I'll be the first to admit, I'm actually not an authority on this. Yeah. I know that when it was being built this was a huge political battle um partially because it was it was done in in part under the blessing of uh, cat uh Mayor Taylor who was fairly left of center for the city of Tulsa. And so I think it was kind of seen right or wrong as sort of a liberal project, if you will. But From certain lights, or at least it seems like the predominant view in the community today is that it's actually been an extraordinarily successful venture, uh, that we've been able to attract a massive crowd. I don't know if it's still true, but at one point, you know, COVID, I think, changed everything. It was one of the most productive, profitable um, entertainment arenas in the United States, uh, in part because there aren't that many other options in the surrounding area, not just Tulsa, not just Oklahoma, but some of the surrounding states, you know, people would drive for many miles. And and I I, I I realize we're kind of stepping outside of the Walmart. I, I think Cheesecake Factory for whatever reason. Yeah, no, I Gets wrote your a lot ire a lot in, in the blog. <laughs> yeah, uh, some of these, some of those developments, and and this is I guess more the what people think of, right? Uh, Amazon or let's build a new sports stadium. But but I'm kind of curious. Do do these investments. If they represent, say, a risk, is it possible they could pay off? Is it possible that you know, hundred years from now, we might be like, "Wow, that actually was an extraordinarily good investment."
0: Yeah, it, it, it's 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 a good question, and it's I think it's a natural question to ask. Um, so let, let let's go way back and and let's imagine the vision here, because you said you know by by all by all counts, this has been very successful. I don't know if that's true. If you go back to what like the original idea was. So my guess is, I don't know the details of the original idea, but I've seen enough of these projects to where I could, I can kind of write the narrative. Right. So Mm -hmm. we are struggling. uh, We have an investment opportunity. We can create, you know, fill in the blank stadium, convention center, what, what have you bring all these people to the town and then, uh, great things will happen as a result. Okay. What are those great things that are supposed to happen? Is it just people coming? Because if it's just people coming, that is is not going to float that venue you know, if it did, then some private entity would have done it. Right. Like, I mean, like literally if it was just a matter of building a stadium and like people showing up paying for parking, paying for, you know, beer and pop and and popcorn at the event and paying their ticket freight, if that paid for a venue, you would have venues being built all over the place by private entities and it would be done. It's be wholly probable. It's, it's not, and that's not why they did it, because they're going to lose money. I mean, at at best, they will break even on that. And that is discounting all of the maintenance of the building, all the maintenance of the structure, the replacement of the roof someday, the replacement of the heating and system. You, there will be a big bond floated someday to try to restore this and make it competitive again and all that. That's the cycle these things these things go through. What the actual thing that you would point at as a business model, uh, is that we're going to build this thing, and then development is going to come. So, w- you know, within a decade of this thing being built, there will be ten thousand more people living within ten block, within twelve blocks of this thing. There will be uh, condo units. There will be entertainment venues. There will be uh, theater. There will be restaurants. There will be all. Now, Tulsa's had some of that. And there's a little bit of that there. And I got to say, I, I, I'm a big fan of Hertz Donuts. So, you know, you've got, it's cool. It's like really great. But that dwarf, I mean, th- it, as cool as some of that stuff is, it is a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of what success would look like with that level of investment and that level of risk. What I tell communities who are pondering this stuff is that you're, you're going about it backward, We often focus on the big project because we have the capacity to do it. You know, we we can get the capital, we can borrow the money, we can paint this big vision, we can, you know, kind of generate like instant success. But if we look again at this human habitat concept, and we look at how cities did these kind of things around the world, uh, you know, Rome built the Colosseum, but they built the Colosseum after they had a really successful kick butt kind of place. They didn't go out and build the Coliseum. Romulus and Remus didn't start with a Coliseum and then say, all this other stuff's going to fill in.
1: It's they, actually, not how, they eventually pulled all the ivory off because they couldn't, they had to get it from somewhere.
0: It's true. Yeah. But, but you can even go to like, you know, the smaller Roman towns. I mean, I, I was in Pompeii and Pompeii has their own version of a theater stadium kind of thing. It, it was not the first thing they built. I mean, it was something that came as they matured up to a certain point. What, what we have done is we have said dessert is the catalyst for the meal. Instead of saying the meal is the thing that we partake in and the dessert is like the reward for all the things that we, 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 we go through. You know, it's the thing you do uh, at, at the end. And I, I, I think there's some real uh, like human reasons why, but we can simplify it down to just the fact that we can if you could eat dessert first, I mean, there's, there's this funny, my, my wife's grandma had this like saying on her fridge, like, you know, eat dessert first. And she lived to be like 98 or something like that. And, uh, you know, it was like, okay, grandma, you know, when you're in your nineties, you eat dessert first, but like, don't tell that to my daughters, you know, they're four and six. So I don't, don't want them doing that as humans. I, I think the idea of, okay, we're going to dig in, build a neighborhood incrementally, Uh, it's going to be hard. It's going to be messy, but when we get done, we're going to have a really productive, strong, viable place that will withstand decades of good and decades of difficulty. Uh, we're going to be able to, you know, be here for a a, a thousand years. This place is going to prosper, but it's going to be hard work along the way. Or door number two, let's just build a stadium and like make it rain. Uh, you know, Yeah. That, that seems a lot, like a lot easier. It seems a lot more fun, you know? So I I feel like the back, the, 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 the story that places like Tulsa fill in after the fact is look at how successful this has been. Why? Because we see someone from way out of the city driving in to go to a a concert. That's not success. Success is that 10,000 people want to live within 12 blocks of that place. That's what success looks like. And it tells us nowhere near that.
1: So part of, part of my, um, part of my angst with what we're talking about here is that it seems like there's a real challenge with trying to align and and this is the story of human nature. So I don't think it's unique to what we're talking about, but trying to align political interest with what is actually in the long-term interest of, of how we live. Um, I can under, and, Granted, some of this could literally be just short-sightedness or just basic ignorance. But I think part of the reason, say, for instance, the states of California and Illinois often get in so much trouble with their pensions is because the life cycle of a pension plan is a whole heck of a lot longer than the life cycle of most political careers. And I, Keep going. it's hard for Keep me going. to I
0: want to talk about, I want to answer this.
1: Keep going. Okay, yeah. It's it's hard for me to see how do we get out of this frame of mind other than a true you know, bottom-up revolution, which maybe is a possibility, if- if so much of the incentive is for the flash in the pan, let's let's get the dessert now. Um, again, not not because people are necessarily doing anything wrong or evil. Sometimes they are. But okay. sometimes it's just their their life cycles are just I, different.
0: I'm gonna make the case for conservatism now. And I'm okay. gonna make the case to to progressives and liberals for conservatism. Because I hear this all the time from from progressives, like, you know, oh, if we were not just, you know. The, about the next election, if we actually thought long term, we would do grand things we would do great things, and so what we need to do is we need to control speech and control uh what you can say around an election and not allow these people who come in with fake news to distort everything and you know it's it, it, it's it's the wrong reaction. Look back at cities of the past. what did cities of the past that were about short-term, that were about the moment, that gave into that human impulse that that we all have? I mean, psychologists have looked at this. They call it cognitive dissonance, the idea that we value the, the positive thing today and we deeply discount the, the negative pain or ramifications of the future. What happened to those cities that thought short-term? They died. They went away. Darwin's like insights on human, on habitats it was really cruel to them in a very real sense. And their ideas were not copied. They, their, their ideas were not transmitted and passed on to the next generation. And so what you have after thousands and thousands of years of humans uh, building their own habitat in a certain way is you have this balance of Not just physical design and layout, but culture that overlays with that, that does things that conservatives do really well, which is, gosh, that's not really prudent. Um, gosh, I, 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 that feels like a little bit risky. Yeah, I don't really want to do that big experiment that you're talking about doing. And, and you know, today in our current system where you're kind of encouraged to think bold and think brash and borrow lots of money and get the big grant and do the next thing, conservatives feel like prudes, right? They look like, what? what, what is wrong with these people? They're against progress. We should be out building the massive transit system and we should be out building the, the massive this and the massive that. Like, let's make things happen. We have a crisis here and a crisis there. Like, how can you not act in, in, in the context of real, true human habitat, where we're all working together to try to figure this out? Conservatives are the throttle, uh, 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 are the, are the break on, on the, the progressive impulse to just throw out everything and, and, and redo it. And, and so how do you get to think long-term you actually have a culture that gives kind of equal weight to the progressive impulse to fix things and change things and tinker that it gives to the conservative impulse, which is to respect the past, to defer to received wisdom, to kind of be leery of big projects and big, you know, sweeping innovations and sweeping change. And and what actually value... The politician and, and the decision maker and the CEO of our municipal corporation, who acts with prudence over the long term—that that's the role of a local conservative, and and we belittle it, we poo-poo it, we, we we say you know you're anti-progress, but but no, they they serve a really valuable function in tempering our worst impulses.
1: Mm, well said. So some of these worse impulses, I I'm, I mentioned to you in the green room. My target audience is geriatric millennials, such as myself, on down to younger uh, millennials, maybe even Gen Z, younger Americans, basically. If we set aside the conversation at a national level of how many trillions we're going to spend this week, let's let's just let's put that aside for a moment, and and the pension questions of the states of Oklahoma and Illinois, or, uh, not Oklahoma, we're we're not too bad off. California and Illinois, and some of those state you know pension questions. If we just focus on these infrastructure projects, how screwed are we as younger Americans?
0: Totally screwed. Um, Yeah, I, 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 we are. Yeah, we we have created for ourselves uh, this what we at Strong Towns call this kinetic growth machine around building of cities that is imploding on itself, and we are we are watching that implosion happen. And so I think that if your idea and a lot of millennials this is not their idea but but let's put it this way if your idea is we are going to in a sense follow the um prosperity trajectory of our of the generations before us we're going to follow the prosperity trajectory of the boomers where we're going to start out at, you know, we're going to go to college. We're going to get out, we're going to get a job. We're going to be able to save some money and invest some money, watch that grow. We're going to become progressively more wealthy. And then at some point we're going to have enough of a nest egg to be able to retire comfortably and, 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 you know, in a certain amount of luxury. And it may look different because we don't want to golf or we don't want to do what the boomers did. We want to go to concerts or whatever. Okay, cool. But it's basically that trajectory that that's over like that's that's done that that i think that that is a laughable notion if you look at human history that period of time uh from really 1945 to i i would say mid 1990s or, or the end of the cold war was an anomaly it's never been experienced anywhere in history and i don't think it will be experienced again in the indefinite future. Like this, that was the anomaly, not the norm. The norm is, you know, people work hard. They advance a little bit. They try to build up some wealth and some stability, and they try to pass that on to the people who come next. It's harder work. It's less like accelerating success. And I feel like since that mid 1990s, what we have done is instead of dealing with Kind of the outfall of this big party we had after World War II, this big economic party we had, is we have devised increasingly nefarious and insane ways to kind of extend that party just a little bit more. Let's have a dot-com bubble, let's have a housing bubble, let's have an everything bubble, let's, you know, print let's go from the apocryphal thing of lowering interest rates to artificially low levels, to the apocryphal thing of doing quantitative easing, to the apocryphal thing of just continually printing money and buying corporate bonds, to the apocryphal thing of just mailing people checks whenever. And and somehow that being like, yeah, that's what we should do all the time. I think that the next generation is going to be dealing with uh, essentially cleaning up the party, you know, going around and picking up the beer bottles and, and putting away the kegs and cleaning up things and taking stock of the stuff that's damaged and destroyed, that's not redeemable. And then trying to get like the most out of what is still there. I think there's a lot of good in that work. And I think there's a lot of, you know, I think a lot of people can live lives of purpose and meaning within that, But I, I think it will be different. It will not be purpose and meaning through consumption as much as it will be purpose and meaning through relationships with other people and, 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 and seeing things, uh, get, you know, starting a project now and seeing it through in 10 years and 20 years to, to some higher form of completion. I, I think that's what my kids are going to have. That's, I think that's the life that my kids are going to have.
1: Hmm. And then that's a sobering message, but I mean, I th- you have to take <laughs> you have to eat your vegetables along with your dessert, I suppose. Um, yeah,
0: and uh, you know, it's funny because if you look at studies of human happiness in the 20th century, the peak of human happiness for Americans was in the early 1930s. It was during the Great Depression, and and it's when you look at the the stats and 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 the statements, you know, people realized that life was hard and life was difficult, but they also ha- had a lot of gratitude. They Their lives had a lot of purpose. It was not purpose-based around consumption or you know, working extra hours or what have you. You know There was a lot of struggle and a lot of stress, but if you had food in your belly, uh, you felt pretty well off. The levels of depression, anxiety, suicide rates, all this that is, has been peaking over the last decade points to this deeper societal angst that we have, uh, where, you know, the way of life we have created and developed is not actually synonymous with human flourishing. It's not actually synonymous with, with people living lives of, of meaning. And I think this is another part of conservatism. I mean, uh, if, if you, if you look at Americans and the label you use is consumer, or the label you use is taxpayer, or the label you use is, is, is some other like economic transaction kind of, of label. I, I think what you're missing is the reason people want to keep, continue to live, which is, you know, I have a family. I love them. I have relationships with people. I value them. I have experiences I- I going about my day that, that enrich my life. And some of that involves consumption, but the vast majority of what really gives it meaning doesn't. And I, I think that's, to me, a better life would be one that gets us closer to the values of the, of the people who lived through the 1930s, quite frankly, than the ones who are, are living over the last 10 years.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a, a great place to bookend our conversation um, thank you. Obviously, we could spend several more hours on any one of these points. Thank you so much for sharing your insight and your wisdom with us. Chuck, thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast.
0: Hey, thanks so much. I, I know we we got to like a tiny bit of your list. So let's let's do this again sometime. I, absolutely. I I enjoy this uh I enjoy this line of thought. So
1: absolutely. We'll we'll have you back sometime.
0: Thank you.